Before we start the show, we just wanted to let you know that we have some new pieces of merch that we wanted to introduce. We have a new t-shirt. It's the Paul Revere shirt. Paul Revere on horseback saying, He gave him the knife. <laughs> it was previously only available at our live dates, but now it's available at thewestwingweekly.com slash merch. You're going to want that shirt. It was drawn by Jess Gupta, my friend who told the original story about he gave him the knife. The person who said he gave him the knife originally on our podcast. So it all comes full circle. What else? Well, in honor of finally reaching the episode 25 on our podcast, we're also very happy to introduce our very first pieces of merch for babies. Yes. Babies come with hats, Toby tells us, and therefore we decided to make some baby hats. You can finally have a baby hat. It's a nice gender neutral white hat that says what's next on it. And in addition to the baby hat, we've also got West Wing Weekly onesies and kids' tees. The onesies and the kids' tees answer President Bartlett's question, what's next? They say, I'm what's next. That's right. You can get all of this stuff at thewestwingweekly.com slash merch. We're really excited for you to see it. And there's just a two-week window here, folks. So jump on that new merch right away. Go to thewestwingweekly.com slash merch. And now... On to our episode. The West Wing Weekly is sponsored by ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring? Well, every business needs great people and a better way to find them. Something better than just posting your job online and praying for the right people to see it. So if you're hiring, check out ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter revolutionized hiring. Their technology finds great candidates for you. It learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. ZipRecruiter will blow your mind. And right now... It'll blow your mind for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash West Wing. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash West Wing. Check it out. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Live from London, this is the West Wing Weekly. I'm Rishi K. Shirway. And I'm Joshua Molina. Thanks so much to the Swingles. Whatever happened to the Swingles singers? There it is. That's what happened to them. You may remember that line from season three, Debbie asks, whatever happened to the Swingle singers? They changed their name to just the Swingles, and then you just heard them. Exciting to be here. We're thrilled to be in London. We've had a swell time here. It's worth noting, I believe today is the 153rd anniversary of the assassination of our 16th president, Abraham Lincoln. Hoping overall this will be uh, a better night of theater. Today we're talking about season four, episode 21. It's called Life on Mars. I prepared for two cathedrals. Come back in a couple years. I also want to, we've got to do some London shout-outs. We've had a lot of fun. Uh, we had a special tour of Parliament. 
Grace and Colleen, I think they're here. Thank you for giving us Thank an incredible, incredible tour. And the best moment for me, the highlight among highlights, was that as we walked into Westminster Hall, which I believe is the oldest section of the palace, right? Grace, we were in awe and we were ooing and eyeing, and Grace turned to us and said, it doesn't go away. <laughs> it, was, it was kind of a perfect moment. Today we're talking about season four, episode 21. I prepared two cathedrals. It's called Life on Mars. <laughs> we do the whole, we can bring the swingles out again. <laughs> that was good. This is usually how it goes when we're at recording at home. One last thing, we also saw the cracking good production of Hamilton in London. That's true. That was fantastic. So thanks to Lynn and Tommy and Katie Bryant and everybody who set that up for us. If you haven't seen it, see it. If you haven't heard, it's good. <laughs> it's incredible. Or should we talk about the show? Sure. All right. What are we here to talk about? Uh, tell me about this episode. The teleplay by fan favorite Aaron Sorkin. That's a given. Story by Paul Redford and Dee Dee Myers. The direction on this episode was by John David Coles, who also directed Arctic Radar. This episode first aired on April 30th in the year 2003. In this episode, you get Hoynes resigning the office of the vice president. It's a bombshell that's revealed in the teaser. We then jump back 24 hours and see how the brand new associate counsel, Joe Quincy, connects the dots that lead to Hoynes' exit. Along the way, Will and the speechwriting interns try to counter an environmental attack ad, Toby eats a salad, <laughs> and Donna tries to reason with a bird. I should have brought a salad and made... No, too late. These are all delightful moments, but they end up all being swallowed alive by the sense of cataclysmic dread as the Hoyne story comes to light. This episode, like the previous episode that we discussed, was submitted as part of the West Wing's Emmy win for Outstanding Drama Series. And Matthew Perry, who's in this episode, how about a hand for Matthew Perry? But before you do that, I'm going to ask if you're going to give a hand to Matthew Perry, it has to be a series of claps delivered like this. <laughs> you guys are good. You did your homework. You it, yeah. <laughs> Matthew Perry's in this episode. Uh, and he and Tim Matheson... Feel free to do that anytime he's mentioned over the course of the evening. I like it. He and Tim Matheson were both nominated for Best Guest Actor in a Drama for their work in the fourth season, based in part on this episode. To talk about this episode, we have two special guests coming out to join us. We have West Wing writer Eli Addy and our very own friend of the podcast, Toby Ziegler, Richard Schiff. Please welcome <laughs> Jews in Union Chapel. Jews in Union Chapel. <laughs> I just want to point out that they stood in Dublin. <laughs> Thank you. And you I, should I, understand we, we had to ask for it there, too. <laughs> I got my standing O and I can leave now. Thank you very much. <laughs> that music was really, really good. Really excellent, right? in fact. That's a Richard Schiff rave, people. <laughs> Just so you know. What was that from? <laughs> oh, we're going to have to jar your memory, it's aren't Friends. we? It's Friends. It's the theme music to Friends. <laughs> That's right. Thank you both for joining us. It's amazing that you could be here with us in London. You've both been on the podcast, but to do it here in front of all of you, it's really incredible, and we're so happy to have you. Nice chance to use your English. Which needs practice. Yeah. 
Should we jump right in? Do let's. Okay. So this episode opens up. We have the teaser begins with Charlie waiting outside of the White House. It's 5.58 a.m. and it's raining. And first thing I thought was that in Aaron Sorkin's world, rain is never without significance. It's always, usually it's uh, some bad omen. Occasionally it's a fun plot device, um, but those always seem to involve a Josh Molina character, whether it's Will Bailey making it rain to help his candidate's election chances, or Jeremy Goodwin getting a chance to give an umbrella to an adult film actress with a heart of gold in Sports Night. I do have to interrupt and, and just say, you know, for full disclosure, rain in every movie is an omen. <laughs> I wasn't going to say it. I'm glad, I'm glad you did, Richard. Full disclosure. <laughs> I think Aaron's not happy with my personal hygiene, so he's constantly hosing me down. <laughs> every now and then it's fun in, in Aaron's world, but... Usually something heavy is coming down from the heaven, so watch out. And this episode is definitely one of those. Charlie meets Claire Huddle, and as they walk through the West Wing, they walk past CJ and Josh and Toby, who all seem to know the contents of the letter in Claire's hand. And Claire knows what it contains, too. When they finally get to the Oval Office, we see it's a letter of resignation from Hoynes. And then we go to the credits. So we start with this huge bombshell. And Eli, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, in the writer's room, when you have something like this where you, you structure it where you reveal what's going to happen right away and then everything else has to, you know, is, is going to be a flashback from here. What does that do for writers when, in terms of like what are the challenges that it presents and then what's the freedom that it gives you? Well, I mean, I think the, the benefit of it mostly is that you're choosing, you know, one of the juiciest, most exciting moments and, and leading with it. You're always looking for, and Aaron was always looking for a great teaser. Very often, in fact, he would have a hard time starting a script if he, if he didn't feel he had an incredibly strong teaser. So I think, you know, it's usually the impulse is simply to move up, you know, one of your best pieces to the beginning. And I actually, I think it's funny because you're spoiling the plot, but I think there's almost more tension when you know what something is leading to. In a case like that, but I do have a teaser story, which you might remember or not. But Aaron, uh, who's often frustrated and also often made jokes about not having any ideas, uh, which is interesting considering his, how prolific he actually is. And he came to set one day and he goes, $75,000 to anyone who gives me a, an idea for a teaser. A good teaser. By the way, an offer not made in the writer's room of the show. <laughs> <laughs> when I first knew him, he used to say, I'll give you 50 bucks to get me a pack of cigarettes. So, I did it over and over and over. So um, I'm the only fool, I think, that took that seriously. And uh, I went in another room and actually thought up what I thought was a great teaser. And I told it to him. And the idea was that we're all in a, either a lockdown or we're working late or the heat's off for some reason. And we try to make a fire and no one can figure out how to make a fire in the fireplace. <laughs> the teaser was used eventually about eight months later. I was married very briefly once to a writer who said the key to writing is to listen to what everybody says and write it down and then publish it long after they forgot they ever said it. <laughs> long, long after you've offered them $75,000 for the idea. What did you six do? Months, with... Six months uh, later when the teaser actually showed up, I had not forgotten that I had given. <laughs> and I mentioned it to him in front of Tommy, Shlami, he goes, I did, didn't I? And Tommy goes, yes, you did. I was right there. And that was the end of it. <laughs> I was hoping there was an epilogue to that story. 
I was going to ask what you did with the money. No, I never got it, is my point. That's my point. That was the subtext of the joke. <laughs> <laughs> we'll send him this episode. It's not too late. He's done okay for himself. Um, and I could use it. We'll share it with everybody. <laughs> Pints on me. You won't be around when he gets the money. <laughs> He means a different yeah. set of He'll people. He'll buy you pies yeah. like Aaron's going to send him 75 grand. <laughs> exactly. He's just hoping for another standing ovation. <laughs> How about the names in this episode? Claire Huddle, Blair Spoonauer, Stu Winkle. And Matthew Perry. Just making sure you're... I want to make sure you're on it. That's got to be the most fun thing, just coming up with names for characters that have to do whatever they have to do. Make up names and then have the characters... Make fun of them. That's what Aaron does. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Dude, you came up with the name. Yeah. Not fair. My favorite thing is that Stu Winkle is name-checked over and over as being an incredibly strange name. Doesn't sound that strange to me. But the name of the actor who played Stu Winkle? Sam Pancake. <laughs> That's a funny name. <laughs> it's true. Sam Pancake, by the way, was also, besides this episode, he was in two other episodes of a show with Matthew Perry. He played a waiter in a couple of episodes of, of Friends. I have a little clip you can hear of him, not with Matthew Perry, he, he's with David. <laughs> We've created a monster. He's with David Schwimmer. What's going on? Okay, um, the waiters have a little pool going. Uh, we have a bet on how long it'll take before you give up and go home. What? You're, you're, you're making money off my misery? Well, if you stay till 9.20, I am. <laughs> Gotta laugh even without the rest of the context of the episode. Well, who are all those people laughing in that clip? <laughs> I was thinking we should pipe in some laugh track for our live tapings. Yeah. Am, I, am I crazy or Stu Winkle was just a voice in this? That's right. Yes. He was just yeah. a voice in this, which is why I thought people might recognize him even though I wasn't playing a uh, video. I was loving the, uh, the idea. I was hoping that he was a voice on Friends as well. <laughs> and that was his career. No, we see his actual face in that, too. He's also in Arrested Development. Sam Pancake is in a lot of things. <laughs> That's a stack of pancakes in his career. I was trying to work towards something. So, you know what? You were a little flat. <laughs> okay, so after we go through the credits, we come back from the cold open. Actually, before we get to that part, Richard and Josh, what's it like during a table read when there's something like this, when there's a big bombshell reveal? I assume, right, is it the table read that you find out these things are happening? Do you, or do you read the scripts before the table read? I'm wondering if there's a collective moment where sort of it's revealed to everyone that, you know, something big like this, that the, the vice president's going to resign happens and, and you can sort of experience your, your shock collectively. Well, when you hear the last uh, podcast... A uh, recurring theme of that podcast was my almost total lack of memory. <laughs> I honestly Such a don't... nice quality in a guest on a podcast <laughs> about a show that's been off the air for 10 years. And, and by the way, when you get to be this age, you know, I, I heard older people when I was younger talk about how fun it is to be older um, because you don't give up, you know. And it's because you don't remember anything to care about. <laughs> but um, I don't remember this being uh, that big of a shock because Hoynes, don't forget, was not necessarily uh, in favor with this White House very much. Actually, one of the things I'm surprised about this episode, I, and that's also very politically interesting, is that they needed him to carry on 
A, the legacy, and B, to lead the Democratic Party after... Bartlett. His name? Thank you. Um, <laughs> he wasn't kidding, folks. Just after, a point of order. After President what's-his-name. President what's-his-name. You know, the little guy. Um, <laughs> and um, I love Martin Sheen, just so you know. Uh, but I thought it was fascinating that they really try to convince him to stick it out, even though um, they really don't... I don't really think they liked him, nor did we very much. But it wasn't a shock because he, he wasn't really a, 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 an everyday kind of part, and there was some acrimony, and he probably got a really good movie. Let's not go he too probably, quickly over that. I mean, Tim Matson was probably only in four or five episodes a season. You guys would know the numbers better, but if, you, I mean, if you're interested, I can tell you a little bit about the behind the scenes, what went into this storyline. I don't know, why. you guys want to hear behind the scenes? <laughs> so... <laughs> It's, a, it's always a tricky decision when you decide to eliminate a character on a show like this because, uh, in fact, I think it might have been Aaron who referred to it once as burning your furniture. You know, it's, it's, it keeps you warm for half an hour and then you don't have the chair anymore. Um, so, yeah, you know, I think it was a little easier with Tim Matheson because he wasn't in as many episodes and, of course, he comes back in, in the later seasons. But this was entirely in Aaron's mind, as I recall, to set up the end of the season which I, I don't know if I should be spoiling or not, or, or avoiding no spoiling. spoiling. Not, so I won't spoil it, but people who know what happens in 25, it's important that Tim Matheson and that character not be in the show. Um, and at, at this point, Aaron and Tommy know they're going? I don't think so. I think it was really? so close. I think this was so incredibly close to... I think that happened so incredibly close to 25 being completed. Now, I think there had been some discussions and there had been moments already this season where the idea of him leaving had been broached. But to get back to the story for a moment, we can come back to that. Aaron was saying to the writer's room he, he wanted to find a way to get the vice president out of that job. And, you know, was there a scandal? Was there something we could do? And I actually told Aaron a, a true story about something that happened in the Clinton administration, and, and this is the story. I don't know how many people here are familiar with Dick Morris at this point. Dick Morris was Bill Clinton's... Zero people, Eli. Zero. <laughs> you don't have to clap for the name. Uh, <laughs> but he was basically Bill Clinton's David Axelrod. He was, he was the, the most important strategist and really the most important... Also zero, Eli. <laughs> basically, we're British in a different reference. country. I don't have a British reference. Could you relate him to a character on the West Wing? All the, all the words are so similar here. I get very <laughs> deluded. No. So, but anyway, Bill Clinton had this political strategist who really was his most important advisor when he was running for re-election in 1996. And the way that guy was sort of toppled, it came out in the National Enquirer that Dick Morris was having an affair, a long affair with a prostitute. And that he was letting the prostitute... You guys heard of prostitutes? He, he was letting the prostitute listen in on phone calls between him and the president. And what, what happened was the prostitute, you know, while she was carrying on this affair, I mean, she was paid with Dick Morris I, at, I think, the Hay Adams Hotel, some hotel near the White House. She would regularly meet him there and apparently suck his toes. It was one of the things that they did. This all came out later. She, Thank she, you for that. She, I'm just glad you're he said welcome. toes. You're welcome. <laughs> So she called the National Enquirer while this was going on and tried to sell her story. And she said, um, I'm, ha I'm sleeping with the president's closest advisor. I listen in on phone calls with the president and there's life on Mars. And, you know, he told me there's life on Mars. And the people at the National Enquirer basically said, you know, we'll call you 
You know, they, they thought she was crazy. And they, I guess somebody scribbled down her number, and a, a few weeks later, uh, NASA held a press conference, and Bill Clinton held a press conference to say that, you know, this meteorite had been found in the Antarctica, and they'd been studying it, and there were traces of molecules, and there may be life on Mars. And suddenly, everybody at the National Enquirer said, uh, where's that number? Uh, and that's actually how that story came out. So I just told that story to Aaron in the writer's room, and it's just so bizarre and so great that that kind of became the basis for this. Wow. And, and I looked it up today, by the way. The, the, sorry, Richard. The, okay. the press conference by NASA was held on August 7th, 1996, and Dick Morris resigned on August 29th, 1996. Wow. One thing you sh that might be interesting to know is that Dick Morris later became enemy number one of uh, the Democrats, right? Oh, for sure, for sure. Clinton hateful guy, opportunist. Hateful, mean and resentful guy. Let's um, bring him up. <laughs> Dick Morris, boo! <laughs> um, but uh, I thought, you know, I read too much into Aaron leaving. From, if you listen to the last podcast, you'll know what I'm talking about. And I thought that this was in a way, some way of writing, uh, of telling a story of the beginning of the breakup of things. In other words... Oh, that's um, interesting. Uh, that Bill Clinton said in a phenomenal thing at the Good Friday Agreement, telling a story about the... Uh, did I say this the other night? Never mind. Um, <laughs> it, it, just a reminder that life is short and that we're not going to be here forever and things break up. And one of the things I liked about our storyline was that after Toby gets the news of this and he goes back into the room, he doesn't say, come here, I got to tell you what's going to happen. He listens first and assesses the progress and then realizes that the mood isn't right for him to even deal with it and then says, I, there's something I need to tell you. But in other words, the work of the nation goes on, the family goes on because it's really about the splitting up of a family and it's a precursor of what's going to happen. But I might have, might have read too much into that. You know, it's possible. I mean. Uh, probably in Aaron's mind, he was already thinking about moving on. I mean, he, the interesting thing to me was that working on the show with him, the two seasons that I did with Aaron, he had a kind of an inability to plan ahead, which turned out to be a great strength. But, you know, we as a group in the writer's room would always try to interest him in, well, we can do this in episode 12, and then we do that in episode 13, and, and this in episode 14 and he would always want to do all those three things in episode 12. And somebody once said about him that he wrote every script as if it was the last thing he was ever going to write. And that, I think it's why he was so good, why he is so good, because he kind of leaves it all on the field. He, he, he it's very Hamilton. Very yeah, Hamilton. Yeah, yeah it, it really Hamilton. is. He, saved, he sort of would save nothing. But then toward the end of the season, he would start thinking about, okay, these last three or four or five have to be you know, great and propulsive. And, and then he would get very interested in building towards something. The, the back of the days of 17 people certainly was an arc. For sure. But, at, the, at, but exactly. the other characteristic of wanting to do everything now and, and not thinking too far ahead is what a good explanation for why we got five-page monologues the morning of, which happened quite often. Uh, which happened quite often. Did it ever happen to you? I never had a five-page monologue. <laughs> There was no, no question when it was delivered. It never came. <laughs> Did you ever have a five-page reaction that was written? <laughs> it's actually, it's interesting to me because this episode, watching it again today, there's kind of one storyline, really. It, there's just this one storyline, but 
everybody gets such interesting character moments along the way, like Richard's couple you know, big scenes where he's eating a salad and, and, and also talking with you about the ads. Very important scene. But they're, they're, I f just found it interesting to watch how many kind of emotional sign points there are for the characters other than Joe Quincy when really the whole story is of him cracking this. I didn't, that's why I didn't say the name that shall remain unsaid. Actually, when, when I first got the script, I thought, wow, this is the first time in my career, probably the last, that I will be used along with an actual funny person as comic relief. Because <laughs> I think it was a little bit of comic relief. Toby's always sure. funny. Toby's, I actually I think, think so too. Certainly often funny. But you know, the thing is... The, the, <laughs> but the For thing, those at home, I gave him a look. <laughs> the, the thing about the, the salad eating joke, this is what, one of the things that I love so much in the West Wing, is that it is built up and built up and built up as this joke and it's funny and we're laughing throughout the thing but in the final reveal there it has this emotional underpinning that the reason why toby is suddenly trying a salad and doing all these things is because he's really trying to get back together with andy and that you know you can laugh all you want about the process but the reason why is actually really sweet and, and heartfelt that's a very good point at the same time i don't know how many people here know this but at that time at least aaron hated salads and he hated anything that was healthy he, he ate a lot of, you know, hamburgers, and, and, and I, I just think that was also very odd. It, it came from a genuine place, the criticism of salad. <laughs> the salad was really a gift from Aaron Sorkin, a writing gift. I wanted to go back to one thing you said about the title of the, this episode is Life on Mars, and there's this kind of silly thing that happens throughout this episode where people keep equating the idea that there might be fossilized water molecules with life. Uh, they're really not the same thing. There's a sort of cavalier... There's water, there's life, no? Apparently not. I mean, not necessarily. I'll because, moderate because this debate. <laughs> Do you want to... There has opening been... Opening statement? There's, the honorable... Or was that it? <laughs> there's, can we wrap this like Hamilton? <laughs> I mean, I, I guess, had there been a... Okay, hold on. Look, all right. A David Bowie song called Water on Mars. I think, I think they would have gone with that. <laughs> That title for the episode. Or, or a song called The Distinct Possibility That There May Be Life in Mars. <laughs> That's the working title. But you can't have life without water. Am I, am I crazy? Should I go back to school on this? Or? <laughs> Actually, it's funny because just thinking about this in the last few days, and I must have had this thought back in 2003. You know, it was in 1996 that NASA held this press conference, and we certainly never heard anything else about life on Mars. I think the report is still classified. It, well, so in 2012, right, the Curiosity rover found proof that water was present on Mars for thousands of years, and maybe millions of years, but they still haven't found evidence of life. There's the possibility that life could exist, maybe, but you know, Mars doesn't have a magnetic pole the way that the Earth does, so all the radiation still gets there. A lot, there are a lot of things that might prevent it. Anyway, I'm just saying that. <laughs> that was a bit of a buzzkill. <laughs> I, I would have preferred the title Distinct Possibility of... <laughs> but the way that that came out through the National Enquirer is interesting. So that ends up getting metabolized into Stu Winkle. Uh, the National Enquirer actually becomes a column in the Washington Post, which I thought was an interesting choice, but I guess it leads a way to bring gossip into the White House because the National Enquirer isn't going to have a reporter who's a White House correspondent, whereas the Washington Post will, and so they can, they can actually have someone who has... Not back in those days, anyway. 
it's kind of, it was amazing to watch this episode today, and I watched it with a few people who were here somewhere, that, you know, just the quaintness of one consensual affair toppling someone's career. Exactly. I mean, uh, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, 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 and I have to say that because of that, and I think it's because of that, my critical eye was a little bit more open on this episode. And I don't know, because I didn't watch back in the day, how I thought of it originally, because I didn't see it. But um, watching it now, exactly right. It feels um, silly and, and obsolete, um, because this news, a classified leak and an affair, is every single day <laughs> we get something like that or exactly that and nothing happens. It used to end careers, and now it's just fodder for a, a news headline that will be erased tomorrow by bombing Syria. On the podcast, we call these Trump III moments. And the other thing that caught my III on this was that uh, there's a sort of quaint subplot that the administration is concerned about even the appearance of having obstructed justice and interfering. Right. <laughs> right. And they're all, oh, now I better talk to Leo. And, the, and the, what kicks off the episode, um, once CJ is informed of the oddities of these two different stories, she goes to get Matthew Perry. You're welcome I, back. They, that, that time I didn't expect it. It's really weird what's happening over here. And the thing she says after that little uh, scene is, find out if there's anything illegal, right? Yeah. And it leads to the potential of a big deal, which leads to a resignation, and yet you know, point already made as to what's happening play, these days. Can we play clip one, yes. which is a Gish and CJ? Is there an existing report that says anything at all? And if so, what? And will it be made public? And if not, why? And if not, isn't that illegal? Um, I don't know. But I'll find out to the first bunch of questions. And as for legal and not legal, that's a matter for the council's office. I love that clip because I feel like there's a very subtle linguistic thing where CJ, who's normally very precise, she says, I'll find out to the first bunch of questions. There's just a sense that she's a little bit rocked back on her heels by what she's dealing with and can't quite articulate what she has to say. Yeah. And as she's saying it, the next thing she says is that she says, Oh, hey, yeah, that's a matter for the council's office. I know the right guy to speak to down there. He's going to fix you right up. And we know from previous episodes like privateers, that CJ likes to engage in a little bit of hazing. She put the olives in Will's jacket. And so she can both answer this guy's questions and she sees a great opportunity to mess with Joe Quincy. And she beams. There's a really, she just smiles so wide. Yeah. And then that takes us finally to a return to the steam pipe trunk distribution venue. And there uh, we find Joe and he meets Blair Spoonauer, a law student who's working at the council's office. And then there's this kind of strange exchange here. What are you, 14? Thank you, no, I'm 22. I'm a law student at GW. What year? I just finished my first. I was just curious about that scene. You know, he's commenting on her age and stuff. And uh, I checked, the actress playing Blair Spoonauer is four years older than Matthew Perry. Um, which reminded me of another, like Luke Perry, playing a high school sophomore at age 24. <laughs> it's a Perry thing. Yeah. Okay, so back to the steam pipe trunk distribution venue. Um, there's a lot of ladder talk down there. there we, we, get, um, we get this exchange. This White House doesn't like lawyers very much, do they? Really, they just hold them one rung above being a Republican. So we have Republicans on this rung, and then lawyers one rung above. And then later, in the same scene, CJ comes in. 
that's a good idea. Let me show you around. As a matter of fact, I should probably stay here and get started. Joe, I outrank you by like 17 rungs, so follow me, would you? Sure. Come on, it's gonna be fun. But if it's not, you should pretend that it is anyway. You know why? Because you outrank me by like 17 rungs. I'm not sure which rung she's referring to, the lawyer rung or the Republican rung, but there's some complicated ladder system in the West Wing. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, everyone. They did say rung a lot. You're not wrong. Okay. Um, moving on. That's how I work. Thank you all for jumping in on that one. Um, no, I, CJ and Joe get into an argument about farm safety net, and Joe says uh, it's the Republican position tearing up the farm safety net, as CJ describes it, that the Republican position is good because, quote, food is cheaper as a result. And CJ argues with him, but I couldn't help but thinking, uh, think about a moment from season two when then Governor Bartlett is, is campaigning in Nashua. And he, t he has, do you guys remember this moment where he's talking about the dairy farmers and Toby tells him to tell the truth about what he's done. And he says, you know, I, I screwed you guys on this one because I didn't want the price of milk to be more expensive. No, but I think it was a flashback, and I think it was Josh that brought me to Vermont or New Hampshire. Wasn't that the moment when, when Josh looks at me because he was honest with these, it was a vet hall, as I recall. You're doing what I sometimes do, which is, I think you're confusing yourself with Rob Lowe. <laughs> that's what happens with Sam Seaborn's character. That's never happened before. <laughs> Nor will it ever happen again. <laughs> Am I really? Yeah, you are already working for Governor Bartlett, or Toby was already working for him, and, and Sam had to be convinced. Yeah. You got to watch this show. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought it was interesting, uh, you know, th that in these two different contexts, this idea of having the farmers have to pay more, you know, in one is, is seen as this, you know, moment for Josh Lyman is, oh, this guy's the real deal. But here it's also being argued as this sort of majority Republican opinion. I thought it was neat. It's funny, I was looking through just old files on my computer that I had that related to this episode, and I found a memo that we wrote for Aaron. He must have asked us for that scene for, you know, just the best sort of pro and con arguments about farm subsidies and an agriculture bill. And, you know, we gave him like two pages of all this detail, which he distilled down to three lines. But the thing that I found most interesting about it was that the memo, for some reason, was titled Hepburn Tracy. So he must have asked us in the writer's room, he wanted to do, he must have said he wanted to do kind of a Hepburn Tracy bit between CJ and Joe Quincy, huh. which became our lifeless memo about agriculture subsidies. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess that makes sense because it ends with this, you know, classic moment from CJ. Claudia Jean, you've only known me for four minutes. It usually takes people a better part of an hour to hate me and everything I stand for. I'm the press secretary, boo-boo. I don't have that kind of time. She almost sounds like she's channeling Hepburn a bit. Yeah. Yeah. That's great context for that. That's really cool. Even See, sometimes this works. <laughs> it's not going to work every time. It's better than the rung thing. It may <laughs> You know, when someone True. makes a good point, you don't have to pile on. <laughs> that, let no, but it lie. I, I really like that that's the origin, you know, that he was trying, going for something like that. Because I had found it a little bit weird, but now I'm totally cool with it, that Joe Quincy calls her Claudia Jean. That he, you know, that he's already that, that familiar with her. Movie. Yeah, that intimate that he would use the non-nickname version of her name. But still, 
Well, it's you know, one of the interesting things to me about, I mean, this episode is just a, a good example of something that happens in virtually every episode, which is that even when there's tension, even when there's heat, as there is between Toby and Will and Toby and Charlie, it's a family. <laughs> and, and people are trying to... Toby and anybody, let's yeah, be honest. Well, let's face the facts, yeah. <laughs> No, but at the end of the day, even in welcoming Republican with opposite views into the White House, the fact that they've set foot in that building means they're part of this family. And even as she's hazing him, she's you know, giving him a huge responsibility and also you know, letting him go see the vice president yeah, on give, his own. Given that, I was just curious what everybody thinks. When uh, they come out of the office, when the vice president says that he's done with Toby and... Um, Will. No, not Will. <laughs> uh, Toby and Josh. CJ and, and, and Josh. Josh. Josh Character is the Josh. guy. And Matthew Perry. <laughs> I got it right. Um, when they leave the office, and we're all kind of shaken, and Josh says, you better not be smiling as he takes the lead in mm -hmm. the walk and talk, which he was wont to do. And, um, and Joe is behind him, and CJ says he wasn't smiling. But there was a kind of hard edge to that little comment that Josh made, which yeah. jumped out at me. I like that moment, though. I, 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 yeah. Yeah, I felt, you know, like Josh had said in the, in the previous episode, it feels like there's a guy from the other team standing in your no locker room. No doubt, yeah. Yeah. Right, and what he brought to them had to be acted upon, but, but there was no still at arm's length a little bit. There was no behavior in this episode that would indicate that that would happen. The only evidence of the possibility of that was that he was a Republican. Right. No, I, I think it exposed more about where Josh is in that scene because he's a guy who used to work for Hoynes. That's fair, yeah. And so he's seeing this guy being toppled by this thing and he's, even in the confrontation with the vice president, he says, you know, or he just cuts right to the chase and Hoynes says, I ought to punch you, you know, but he's, I think, running in the red from the beginning of the scene already. And then he, he ends up taking out a little bit on, yeah, on fair enough, yeah. I mean, it, it also speaks to what Richard was saying kind of at the top of this, which is that none of these characters, except maybe Josh, and not even Josh really, have been that sympathetic to Hoynes. But he's the one who would be most likely to be sympathetic. He could have said that comment in some ways, possibly to you or to CJ. Actually, I was thinking it the, the other way, that Josh is, the, is likely to be least sympathetic. Like, he's, the, he's most let down by Hoynes. That's interesting. And so he is going to have the harshest response to him. Everybody there is kind of being a little bit uh, ginger about, you know, they're speaking a little gingerly about what they're there to talk about. And Josh just goes right for it because he's mad at him for having put them in this position and, and having to see this guy who he, he worked for falling from grace like this over this. Interesting. You win. <laughs> but how cute is the scene between uh, between Toby and Will? Very cute. How can it not be? <laughs> it's true enough. It's a lot of cute to work with. Actually, um, Richard, it sounded like a little bit like you might have a cold in this. Um... Yeah, I've noticed that. I must have been sick. You <laughs> <laughs> play this part. We've been sitting here for twenty minutes. I came in to show you the spots and to tell you I think we should run a counter ad. I don't have an idea for one. Well, get one. Have an idea. Don't come in here with half a thing and not be able to, you know, after you've walked me to the brink and say, we've got to do this, it's important, though I have no earthly idea how. Like one of those guys who buys a big new thing but doesn't really know how to get the most out of it. <laughs> I love that. 
That's why, that's why he got the five-page monologues. <laughs> Can I say also that Richard is so good in this episode, I think, and it's a testament to his acting because he doesn't really have a storyline in the episode. He's, he, I think all of our regulars are really supporting Matt Perry's storyline. Uh, and, and I think it... I forgot that. I, I'm, I'm, I'm really You guys impressed. keep waking Richard. I think it, I think it, takes, I think it takes a lot... To, because in, in those scenes, particularly in that scene and in the scene with Charlie where he's eating the salad, the evil salad, he goes from zero to 60 and is having a real emotional experience that's about this deeper thing. And it's probably harder to act those scenes when they're not connected to a solid through line. I don't remember them as being uh, more difficult. It's definitely easier to be in a full arc storyline because you kind of ride it after a while. You jump on the tracks and you let the tracks take you and you know, you ride, it's a little bit of a roller coaster and it's like, oh great, you're surprised. So these you have to kind of work out beforehand because they're isolated in a way, but they're, they're not hard. I just don't remember them as being hard except that I was probably sick and very um, uncomfortable. But no, I don't remember them as, as really being hard. And, you know, it was a recurring theme where Toby would be disappointed in, in Will. Um, and I just love the fact that Dulé was sitting in my office and I was watching my reactions to him talking and talking and talking and talking. And um, the oddity of the fact that he was in my office was uh, available to me to play, you know. And that was already, I think the first line I say is, you know when you said, uh, you won't even notice me? Well, yeah. I do. Um, and then he gets at me with the salad. It was, it, what I love about that is the layer. It's like, okay, you can eat here, and you can chat your, my ears off, and it's like, that's weird, but don't get me with the salad. <laughs> and uh, no, but those were fun. I don't, say, I, don't, I don't know if they were hard, but then again, I don't remember. <laughs> well, you, you have a great sort of buddy comedy dynamic, both with Josh and with Dulé in, in those scenes. Yeah. I, I could just have to say, I love you a lot, and I, I really do. You can say nicer things about Dulé now. I'm going to. Go ahead. I know where this is headed. <laughs> He's been there before. Um, no, but Dulé, Dulé Hill is just one of the most special human beings, just one rung ahead of... Well, of <laughs> What's your name again? Wrong, 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 wrong. No, but uh, because I didn't get to work with him that much, you were, I had to work with him every day, but um, because I didn't get to work with him that much, we only had three, four scenes maybe. Sure. It was a pool table scene yeah. or something else. And I adore that man and more now than then. And I just wanted to say that he's incredible. He's incredible in the scene, and he's just incredible. He's great. This must be why you're about to go to his wedding and I wasn't invited. <laughs> I went to the first one, I'll go to the third. <laughs> but I wasn't invited to this one. Do I have to respond to that? <laughs> it's best that you don't. Yeah. <laughs> On that note, let's take a quick break. The West Wing Weekly is sponsored by Squarespace. Squarespace will help you 
build the site for whatever your idea is. If you've ever had a cool idea for a new website, you can do it with Squarespace. You can showcase your artwork. You can blog. You can publish any content you can come up with. You can sell products and services of all types. We use Squarespace for our own website, thewestwingweekly.com, which by now I'm guessing you've probably seen. If not, you should check it out, thewestwingweekly.com. It's an example of a Squarespace site that was easy to put together and is easy to maintain. Every time we come up with a new idea for the site, it's quickly accomplished. It's true. In fact, I use Squarespace for my own website outside of the West Wing Weekly. It's rishikesh.co. It's my own personal page, and I use Squarespace for that. So check out Squarespace. They help you make it, whatever it is you're trying to make. Go to squarespace.com slash westwing for a free trial. And then when you're ready to launch, use the offer code westwing, and you'll save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. Go to squarespace.com slash westwing. And now back to the show. I'm impressed that in a span of three sentences at the end there, you get to work in the word thing twice and have it mean different. You're referring to two different things. Don't come oh, in here that, with half a thing, and then you're like a guy with the big new thing. And um, that was also if you If you take those words and just kind of change one or two of the order of them, they will make absolutely yeah. zero sense yeah. whatsoever, which is the brilliance of Aaron um, uh, in many ways, right? He's a and precision for sure, writer. For sure. Well, it's metered out, and there is a specific landing point on the words that make this nonsense have deep meaning. If not deep meaning, then very specific meaning. I noticed one of the other uh, sorkin things that he does in this episode, uh, which he, he often does in other episodes, will have a character say something, the other character says, I'm sorry, and the first character repeats it again. Yeah. I, if you cut out all the times it happens in this episode, the thing would run 17 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and yet somehow it's incredibly effective. I'm not even really sure why. That's right. I, think, I think sometimes you know, especially in a storyline like this, there's so much information going by so fast that it actually gives you a pause for breath. He finds ways, to, I think that I believe that the, the repetition is, is actually a form of exposition. He's giving you the chance to absorb Catch a up complicated a idea that if you only had the one instance of it, you, it would just be too fast. Especially and, in this episode. Am I yes, crazy? for sure. Yeah. This, I, is a, I, this I was, can be hard to follow. I was watching, uh, the first time I watched it, I, went, I was like, What? There's a NASA, what, in Cassian? Who's Cassian? And 100,000, what's going on? And there's a leak somewhere, and how did they figure that out? It, yeah. And I watched it the second time, as, as many people apparently have to do. Thank God I didn't have to start way back then, because <laughs> I would have had to watch it six times to understand it myself. And it, it takes that repetition to land exactly what the hell we're talking about. It's, just a, it's a kind of a more fun, less obvious way of doing it than the typical network TV, you know, spelling it out in just a very obvious way. Don't get but, me depressed, please. But there's, there's also actually when, when, I don't want to say the name, Joe Quincy. Uh, he, no. He figures out, I mean, it's quite an intricate thing that he unravels over the course of this episode. He's although, sort of although, Sherlock Holmes-like. I don't know if you guys get that reference. Um, but then uh, once Hoynes in the Hoynes, I can only say it like Jerry Lewis, uh, Hoynes uh, is presented with it, he actually reiterates. Oh, so you, yeah. you saw the call logs Although, and you figured this and you worked it back to that right, guy. Right, right. I well, thought that was also sort of uh, rather cleverly done. Hoynes does say to... Hoynes. To, <laughs> he does say to Joe, though, that um, you heard a rumor. 
which I don't think comes up any other time in the episode. And it actually, you know, I only really caught it today watching it, that that's probably why he was so far ahead of the curve, that he'd heard th about this. And uh, it's makes it another, more plausible. That makes it more plausible. And it's another thing that happens a lot in this episode, which is that you can blink and miss that. And it's such a big point. I did, I don't think, twice. Yeah, and I don't think... <laughs> You know, I, I was also kind of marveling at the way in the first Toby Will scene where you're watching, I guess, the ad that you're going to counter. I can't remember now if that was something we shot or if we actually wrote the first ad. Uh, uh, and, and, and I don't, I'm know where, I'm and I don't know where we can get that information, possibly. Richard is raising his hand like an eager school child for people listening at home. <laughs> Which I haven't done for 53 years. <laughs> um, I was wondering that when I watched it. It's like, did we, did they ever shoot it and did they just forget it? It makes more sense in many ways if we have at least one image of Rex the dog and the woman with the car because I had shot that scene with Josh Molina and I... Please. I, who I adore. And um, uh, not quite as much as Dulé Hill. And um, I didn't know what we were talking about. Because I, I, I hadn't done it or seen it in so long. It's like, what? what Rex you know, it's funny. I didn't know what the issue was because you hear it in the first part of the commercial, the, 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 some bill, or is it a bill, something? See, Fuel efficiency know, standards. Right? Yes, and so it took me the second time through to know what the heck we were talking about. And I'm the one doing the talking. <laughs> <laughs> now that I think about it a little bit more, it's, it's highly, highly unlikely we shot the ad because as I think about it, the ad, which is described at one in pieces in that scene, would have been very expensive to shoot for just a little quick one pop. One little shot. Well, of a, of a dog all this a stuff in a car. I mean, maybe you're right. It feels to me like that would have been a lot of work for just yeah. a tiny little shot on a screen. But I was impressed watching it today that it lets you catch up to what the hell these two guys are doing or talking about. And you, don't, you have no idea till the middle of the scene. It takes a while to even realize they're talking right. about an ad. And that's, which you don't good, see that a lot. Which is it's a, good a very thing, good as thing. As long as we figure it out. Yes, exactly. I have a little thing, just a little minor thing, but I like to find any kind of scandal West Wing crossover. We know that Shonda Rhimes is a big fan of the West Wing and that David Rosen, the character that I play on Scandal, no, please, um, <laughs> was kind of an homage to David Rosen, who is mentioned as having been offered Toby Ziegler's job first. Who I, met, who I met, the real person at the Democratic Convention this last horrific uh, election cycle. You want to tell us about that? No, he's not that interesting. Apologies. I to guess David you Rosen. just did. No, he's a fun. He's a fundraiser, and he introduced himself as I'm the David Rosen from blah blah blah, and uh, that's it. Okay, <laughs> that's enough. Okay, so there's a little bit from Josh. It's it's the whole trying to get Joe Quincy to correct and say, "No, I'm a shyster, not a sawbones." Uh, and then Josh is a little bit competitive because he knows that Donna thinks that Joe Quincy is cute and uh, is a biscuit. I don't practice law. I help write the laws. I write the laws. I make the laws. I am the law. In my mind, this is echoed years later in my dialogue, David Rosen's dialogue on Scandal. You know what I love about my job? I'm the good guy. The law is on my side. I am the law. The law is me. I, I, it's, more, it's the Scandal I, style of that. I believe that's plagiarism. <laughs> uh, you tell Shonda. <laughs> I think she just owes Aaron $75,000. Am I crazy or did Theresa May also steal a little bit from the West Wing? Yeah, it happened. 
You always set these things up as if the thing is correct, you're not crazy. You're still crazy, but you're right about, you're right about the Theresa May thing. And it's when tested the most that we reach deep within ourselves and find that our capacity to rise to the challenge before us may well be limitless. Sometimes, though, the repetition, you know, has this expository quality, and sometimes it's just fun, like when they say, stop it over and over again to the bird. Um, <laughs> we meet Donna's bird. Sometimes it's fun just to have people re repeat things. Sometimes it's fun when Matthew Perry repeats things. See? But when Matthew you guys Perry. buy a shirt that says repetition is fun, not a great merch idea. <laughs> what is the bird all about? I know. You do? <laughs> Richard, Richard Schiff, you've been recognized. Hand, but I want to hear other theories first. Well, I, I actually, do, I can tell you, maybe this well, is what Richard's about first, to say, then. but I hope it's not. <laughs> okay. I, okay. Wait a minute. I hope it's not the theory that I have. That's what I'm hoping No, that for. would be great. Let's hear you first. I, I just think that it's, um, it's kind of silly, but it's a, a carrier pigeon banging on the, on the window of the White House. Something's going on. Huh. You know, like, well, maybe I'm mixing Game of Thrones in the West Wing. <laughs> No, I think that, actually that's where I was but going just to. Just tap, 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 and stop it. Tap, 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 and stop it. Something is going on outside of this West Wing that you don't know about. Yeah. When well, a Sorkin project, rain and pigeons always. Rain and pigeons. <laughs> it, and I thought it was very Ed Edgar Allan Poe. Tap, tap, tap is their version of Nevermore. Right. Well. Well, here's, no, the I think, here's the real thing. <laughs> I think that's so wrong. I think that may be totally right. I was just going to say that there actually was a bird. Uh, on the ledge of the writer's room. That, <laughs> that this is true. I and can't that, tell you how disappointing that no, is. No, but that doesn't, mean, that doesn't mean that it didn't present itself, you know, to Aaron as some kind of a symbol, but it was pecking at the window, and he, you know, he had this uh, wonderful way of just hoovering in anything that was happening to the people around him or to him and just always ended up on the page. And it may well have had that symbolic intent. This, this explains why I also overread putts. <laughs> I think I read a little bit too much into this. this. Is a, it's another victory for Occam's razor. <laughs> Blanche Sindelar, who is the props master on the show, she told me that, uh -huh. that they, you know, they brought in a pigeon trainer, an animal handler for this, because I, I was amazed by you know, how well they were able to shoot that and how hard it was and and even i was wondering you know is any of this trickery or anything like that she said no it's a real bird and just pigeons are very smart and they had a, an animal trainer come in and they couldn't throw in a dog too and get rex on screen. <laughs> but it's an odd that's our show it, it, it isn't it is an odd choice in some ways and i think in a good way because it, it doesn't, it's not something that goes anywhere. It's just a, it's just a sort of an, I mean, it probably was intended as a symbol. It's just sort of an odd feature of these scenes and, you know, gives those actors something else really interesting to play. Well, I mean, it also sets up the, a couple of repetitive, not repetitive jokes, but jokes that repeat about being crazy. Josh walks into Donna when she's going, stop it. And then Josh says, I'll scare it away. And she goes, no, 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 don't do that, which is really kind of adorable. And then when Matthew Perry, Boy, it's dying down, I have to say. It's, uh, friends, it was a long time ago. Um, and uh, CJ and Donna are saying stop it at the same time. And yeah. it gives a perspective of, you know, everyone's a little crazy. So then after we meet the bird and, uh, and Donna tells Josh not to shoot away because he's not bothering anybody, we go to Will's office where he's now trying to come up with the counterattack for Rex the dog. And I think it's really sweet that Will is still working with Cassie and the Lawrence, who we met 
you know, in the two-parter a few episodes ago, I think that seed was planted at the end of that episode that the interns are going to stick around and do the work. And But there's a little bit of a competitive relationship and we see a little bit of the resolution of it. I'm so happy that there's a part two to that, that that, that wasn't the end of that relationship and they, they come back for this. It felt a little bit to me like that storyline juxtaposed against the Hoyne storyline was an echo of 17 people actually where jokes are being written in one room mm-hmm. while this right. much more serious drama is happening. Wow, that's right. Even to the point that at the end of this episode, you say to Will, you're going to have something to tell him. Mm-hmm. And, and that happens at the end of 17 People too. I can't remember now who says to somebody else, stick around. I think, no, I think I come back in from the Oval Office being utterly shaken from that scene with the president and with Leo. And I come back into the Roosevelt room to continue. For sure, work. yes, right. Is that not what you're talking well, about? Well, I think that definitely happens, but I think there's a moment the when somebody else says to Sam, stick around tonight. Again, he's gonna, you're confusing he's, yourself uh, with he, Rob Lowe. No, no, but it might be, I can't remember whether that is you or Brad, but somebody kind of yeah, says yeah. a similar thing. But you're right, you have that same moment where you have this heavy knowledge and you walk through this kind of room where... And life still has yeah, to go on. Yeah. They seem to similar parallels. So with both the bird and with this ad, these other little things that are happening in these compartments, you know, the, the rooms in, in the West Wing, none of them go anywhere. Right, they we don't never, resolve. We never find anything out about the, the ad or what is to come of it. We never hear again from the yes, bird. that's right. Maybe not the bird storyline, but that storyline had an ending at one point that we pitched to Aaron and that it was his choice to just have everything subsumed by this bigger Mm. story, which seems fitting, but it kind of, it just brushes everything else under a rug. I'm just curious what you think now of, and it was mentioned earlier in in another podcast with the current Me Too thing and the attitudes towards uh, women working on your staff. There's a very specific lack of knowing their names, which is an Aaron Sorkin recurring theme, which also happened in Charlie Wilson's War. I'm just wondering how you guys reacted to that. We talked about it. Yeah, well, what used to be far worse, Will Bailey gives them football jerseys and calls them by number. (laughs) Yeah. That happened in the West Wing? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Do you actually... This is... What you're seeing is the vestige of earlier, you know, far actually, worse ability you, to really, uh, discern one from the maybe other. Maybe if somebody would play the music, I, my memory would come back. <laughs> uh, but I will say this. No, no, I but you're, that right. has an origin, actually. That was actually something that Roseanne did with her writing staff when Roseanne was first on the air. She had so many writers, and they came and went so often. There were so many people fired and so many people hired that at one point she... This is the story I've heard. She made jerseys for her staff with just numbers on them. So wow. she could walk into the writer's room. You know, maybe that's apocryphal, but that was the story I heard. So that, that actually was a bit of an homage to that. Yeah. But I thought you were going to, Richard, also going to talk about the final, I don't want to get ahead of where you guys are headed, but the final scene with Bartlett and Leo and Hoynes, because even the attitudes in that, they're a little, those could be a little polarized. Yeah, did you which really, say, didn't you mm-hmm. know that she, didn't you get a sense that she would do something like that? Well, you that, but, but also just the fact that they want to, even that they want to fight and defend him. Some people could take issue with that. As out of step with 2018. Well, he, nothing, he didn't do anything wrong except have an affair. What's wrong with that? <laughs> kidding. I'm I'll kidding. moderate this debate. Yeah. Kidding. 
<laughs> Should we start with the opening no, statement? You know what I mean? No, sure. No, right, no it's just interesting. I think advantage. it's interesting. There was no abusive behavior. It was just illicit behavior, but it's not That's true. illegal, nor does it cross a, a red line in behavior, you know, except with the wife. Right? Well, one of the moving things, I think, about that whole storyline to me is that whatever you judge him for or do not about having the affair, what his undoing is this very human impulse to impress. It's one of the saddest yeah. things, that, you know, he, which talk. he admits to in that big scene. And he basically says, you know, he wanted to be the guy who seemed like a good guy because he helped arrange for the, what is it, whatever it is, the 10,000 yeah. computers. 100, computers. And he wanted to show that he knew this inside information about water on Mars. It's, it's some, to me, there's something touching about that. It's, pillow t it's, it's the pillow talk thing, which is why, you know, people are taken advantage of by spies and nefarious interests. They create these relationships so that pillow talk will lead to information. Wow, that was a long sentence, go ahead. No, that was good. And, and, and one of the things that I really, well, let's play the clip and then I'll say. I'm resigning the vice presidency. What about it's none of your business? I leaked classified information. It is their business. It's also a felony. Are you in a position to deny it? I love that last line and I love that Leah says it because I feel like Aaron occasionally leans towards hagiography and sort of making out his characters to be these just saintly, perfect, morally, ethically. And here you have Leo basically saying, can we get away with just denying it? Like, never mind what you did and that you committed a felony and that you did cheat. Like, can we just gloss this over? Which I like. It makes just the characters more complex and real and... Uh, Politic uh, political. Yeah, right. Uh, realistic. Let's backtrack a little bit to how we get to this scene. When we're first in the in the room with Charlie and, and Toby and the salad. We get some exposition from Charlie, some pretty hardcore exposition here. Baldwin, along a fixture in DC and Manhattan society, whether for her work on charity boards or her position on the arm of some of Wall Street, Washington, and Hollywood's most eligible men, as well as hosting some of the Beltway's favorite, what the hell kind of sentence is this? <laughs> He's channeling Richard. <laughs> <laughs> It's interesting because he's doing this thing, you know, that we've talked about before where the news sort of serves as a way to bring in a lot of exposition really quickly. But it also gives us a little bit of insight into Stu Winkle. We don't know yet what Stu Winkle does or, or that much about him, but immediately we're given this insight that despite the fact that this is a writer for the Washington Post, not necessarily a great writer. I actually asked Emily Heil, who's, who is the gossip columnist for the Washington Post currently, what she thought about this episode, and, and here's what she sent back. She thinks that Stu is treated really unfairly, um, that he's a guy with a legit job, and it sounds like he's pretty good at it. Respect, that's what she said. Um, and, and I think this is part of it, you know, that the, they're making fun of his, his writing to sort of delegitimize him even before we get any further. Like, he, he's kind of, he has his legs cut out from under him. It's, it's nice to know that the gossip columnists hang out together and stick up for each other. <laughs> Exactly. CJ also notably hangs up on him. As soon as she has what she needs from him, he's in mid-sentence. That's true. Click. Yeah. Um, one last thing that Emily Howe wrote. She said, a lot of the mechanics of that storyline ring true to me. As a gossip slash social columnist, I have definitely come across tips that I then pass on to colleagues. It goes the other way, too, that colleagues who cover politics and other beats pass me tips that they can't use. Which I thought that was, I mean, that was yeah, pretty Yeah, I think the, the show as a whole took such a dim view of leaks and disloyalty and of press coverage that was more about sort of, you know, salacious gossip or, you know, conflict as opposed to substance. So it just feels so consistent to me with earlier episodes where, 
it's a little bit of a smackdown of the press, frankly. Yeah. That also speaks to some Aaron and loyalty. For sure. It's funny because I joined the show at the beginning of the third season. And at least my sense of it, not having been there before that, is that the show itself was getting a lot of glowing press in those first couple seasons. And I think in the third and fourth seasons, less so. Even though it ended up, for example, winning Best Drama Emmy in season three and four, it was kind of written off for those years until it won. There were a bunch of fairly negative stories written in the New York Times and other places about behind the scenes things at the show, and you know, some of which were unfair. And I think that, yeah, I think that stuff upset him and he you know, wanted press coverage that was a little more substantive and a little less, you know. I think this episode took on its own life and, and uh, some of those scenes were fairly stripped down of a lot of the discussions that we had leading up to them, as is always the case. But I remember very specifically when I worked for Al Gore, there were a number Eli of... Eli worked for Al Gore. Yes, she didn't know. <laughs> and, was a, and was a Toby Ziegler of sorts. I mean, a well, very, I very just, great... I was more of a Sam Seaborn, maybe. In, well, <laughs> no, no. I didn't mean it that way. I meant more junior. I meant more junior. You mean you weren't as good as Toby? <laughs> That's exactly oh. what I mean. No, I was, I was Al Gore's <laughs> speechwriter, so... Writing, writing. I'm talking about writing. Only writing. I aspired to be Toby Siegler. But, um, you know, there, there were a number of tell-all books written by recently departed Clinton aides who left that White House. And I remember even having this conversation with Al Gore that it makes it much harder for a, for a staff person to have a relationship of trust with, you know, whoever they're working for if they suspect that you're going to go out and sell your story or tell your story or just gossip to a reporter. And I know that was some of what we talked about in the early discussions of what became this episode, was just the idea that both Hoynes and this Helen Baldwin woman, who presumably, you know, she's having an affair with somebody, he thinks he can trust her for that reason alone, that leaks and disloyalty kind of undermine everything you do in something like government. So the moment when Joe Quincy, super sleuth, is able to put this all together and and then reveals it to CJ is an interesting one because it ha- actually happens wordlessly between the two of them. It's while Stu Winkle yeah. is rambling on on speakerphone and he sort of presents all the evidence to CJ, right. shows her the calls, shows her the clippings from the newspaper. And this is a moment that I, I think is really interesting. It's very dramatic and, and it play, it's played out so nicely. And while watching that scene, that's when I felt this is why the first op- the teaser was the reveal of where this pays off because that scene is so complicated. There's so many things that are yeah. that are happening, and the information that's being told to look at that and figure out okay from all of these things what this means. They never actually explicitly say this means that the vice president was having an affair with Helen Baldwin, and and she's leaking stuff to Stu Winkle, which must have come from the vice president. All this stuff is sort of coming out. It's being implied, and it's really complicated. The reason why we as an audience are able to digest all of that is because in the first 30 seconds of the episode, we get the letter of resignation from the vice president. Well, what I thought was interesting about that is that if you get, you might get from that scene that the vice president is having an affair with Helen Baldwin, or you might not. The story works either way. But to me, it's so unusual for this show to have used, you know, insert shots, 
you know, it, it just very, very rarely told mm. stories that way. It would usually be, you know, Richard and Brad in a room. It would be done like a play where you can't use those kinds of quick visual pops. And the only reason I think it does is because it's so complicated and seeing those call sheets and seeing those scribblings at least gives you a chance to catch up. And I think you barely get that chance before it, the it scene's it over. It also gives them the opportunity to keep it wordless, which is... Which yeah, is, it's a lovely which, scene. And the, and the direction is. by John David Coles, I think, yes. is... Spot on. Concur. Nice thing about the insert shots, too, and this sometimes happens in moments like this in the West Wing, all the names of all the other calls that aren't Helen Baldwin and John Hoynes are people who work on the West Wing. Um, Blanche Sindelar, who we mentioned already, the prop master, and previous guests on our show, Lynn Paolo, who's the costume designer, and Ellen Totleben, who's the set decorator, they're all names on that call list if you, if you stop. You and, have watched the show way too many times. <laughs> Luckily, I'm not the only one. I think that there's also... Um, this thing is happening at minute 29. This scene is happening at minute 29. And if it had happened earlier... Like we, and we need that much time to finish the plot. But if it had happened any earlier, you know, closer to the actual letter in the cold open, it would have felt too abrupt. Like it's this build up to it. And I th just think the pacing of getting to that is really uh, expertly It, it also changes their relationship at that moment. For sure. Yeah, she goes from hazing him. He proves something to CJ there, too. But it is still a little bit crazy that Joe Quincy is such a super detective. Well, you know, this yeah. actually this gets to something that, that I was thinking about this episode, especially in rewatching it, which is that um, I think Matt Perry does a great job in this. And, 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 I'm, sure, You're better and than I'm, sure, and I'm sure that his work on the episodes he did is, you know, what led Aaron to want to work with him on Studio 60 after this. But... I wish there were more of our regulars in this episode. He really, he's kind of a guest coming in and he really kind of swallows the episode. There's only and so many salads I can eat in one. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. The salad of mercy. I, I thought it crossed my mind that, you know, that every actor's in thirst of a great storyline. And uh, I didn't, so I thought we needed the rest, you know, to tell you the truth. But it did occur to me that he was doing a very, uh, this guest this stranger was doing a very West Wing kind of storyline. Yeah, for, for sure. And, and, and it's a, I, again, it's a testament to Richard and Allison and Josh and, and these you know, incredible actors in the show that with the little real estate that they got, they made a real impact and a real, and also it's a testament to, to Aaron, but a real, you know, their characters kind of still progressed in this episode, but you know, in a lot less well, time than normal. We were, we were pretty good. <laughs> Um, uh, no disagreement here. Eli, as someone who worked for a vice president, I wanted to ask you about the moment, monumentous, the, how big of a deal this is. Yeah. <laughs> um, Would that be monumentality? Really was. I'm not sure. <laughs> so many of the episodes of The West Wing that I love deal with these sort of more, I don't want to say quotidian necessarily, but things that feel like they came right from the government and they feel like the real substance of governing. But this, right. of a vice president resigning, it's only happened twice before in history. Um, John C. Calhoun resigned, and, and he did that for political reasons. Spiro Agnew is the only one who's ever resigned in disgrace like this. So only really one other precedent in history. Did you feel at all like this was, was there any danger about having such a big... The credibility of a plot line like that? Yeah. I don't think so because, again, this speaks to what a different time it was and how long ago it is now. This was seen as a bombshell that, you know, not only did he have an affair, but that he also 
leaked potentially damaging, maybe even illegal classified information to, to her. Yeah, it's a huge thing, and it's an especially huge thing because I think as we established on the show with Hoynes, you know, the vice president has no portfolio, and some are really close, important advisors to presidents, and some are not, and we really depicted Hoynes as someone who wasn't. And so really his job was to have a heartbeat in case the president lost his, and to sit around and wait for the opportunity to run for that job. So it's not like somebody who's served so honorably and so well who realizes they can no longer serve in the same way. It's, it's taking himself out of a line. It's even referred to in that scene that, you know, well, in two and a half years you can run. It always was about him waiting his turn and running. So I think it makes it an even harder decision. But no, I, I think, especially as we're getting to the end of this season and knowing where the season is going, I think Definitely, this was about some big moves, you know, and, and, and propelling us to the end of a season. If I may, I mean, I think um, Aaron certainly elevated the morality, if not the efficiency and the success of this administration. The morality of this administration was a priority to accentuate. And we had been through a right. pretty big scandal a few years earlier in the real world, not to mention, was this before 2000? Four, what was it? This is 2003. Well, we were forebodingly uh, presenting uh, the, the next scandal, which was, uh, I believe, John Edwards and that. So in the real world, it was happening. And I think what Aaron, maybe, and, and the writers were, correct me if I'm wrong, were saying that this White House is a step above on a moral plane. Maybe not in the realistic logistics of governance and the successes. Because if you look at our administration, not a great deal of massive legacy achievements. Achievements, thank you. The, you know, a Supreme Court justice is, a, I always get struck by when people say, oh, I wish you guys were in the real White House. I go, careful what you wish for. <laughs> because take a look at our record. And part of the thing that um, I loved about that part of, of what Aaron presented and what continued after he left was the absolute um, difficulty of getting anything done, especially with an oppositional Congress. And we focused on, that makes better stories, to fail mm -hmm. and to give it your best shot and to, to go around and to move on to what's next. But the Clinton White House was much more successful you know than what's, we You were. know what's funny about that? You're so, you're so right about that. And I think that that was a kind of a storytelling choice, talking about the sort of thinness of, of the accomplishments of this White House. And I remember my first week on the staff, in the third season, Aaron coming to me one day and saying, could you just give me a quick, because I was coming out of the real White House and had all this vernacular, and he said to me, just give me a quick paragraph on Bartlett's accomplishments as president. And then he left the room. And I remember thinking, I just got here. You've been <laughs> writing this show for two years. But I think it was because really there weren't that many signal accomplishments. I just made up a few medium-sized things. I think partly because you, could, you, you couldn't say on the show, well, he's have the defense budget and, you know, now college is free and things that you would sort of weirdly have to depict in some major significant way. It was very hard to speaking, think of a way to dramatize those. And speaking of the unbelievable, <laughs> the fact that those successes could have happened, do you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, for is, sure. Is, is a bigger stretch than other fiction. For sure, know? absolutely. 
So at the end of this episode, we kind of return to the original moment that we opened with, but things are a little bit different and it gives us a chance to see some different details. The first time when, when Clara Huddle walks through the hall, we see CJ and we see Toby and we see Josh sort of taking in her walk. This time she does the walk again as we've now caught up in, in real time, but this time they show Joe Quincy watching her as, as she comes in and we know now what, what a huge role he played. And then there's a repeat of the scene between the president and Claire Huddle in the Oval Office, but it's shot totally differently. And I thought this was an interesting thing. I don't know if it's, a, I imagine a John David Cole's decision to shoot it, you know, it's, it's you have to. You square have to. on with the Resolute desk. And when the scene first starts, there's nobody in the frame. And then the president walks in, and then Claire Huddle walks in, and they have their exchange, and there are no cuts, which I guess isn't that unusual with all the walking talks. But the camera doesn't move, really. And then it starts to slowly back away. They finish the scene, and then they both leave. And and that was a, a really visually kind of jarring thing, almost to see the camera not doing anything except for just backing away. It was a kind of visual move that we never see on the show. And I thought it was it was a nice way to underscore that this kind of huge plot moment is also something that we've never seen on the show. I found myself watching that and thinking, because The West Wing, you know, was a very difficult show to produce in the sense of, you know, really long shooting days. You know, the writers worked incredibly hard. It was just a we all love being there, but it was a, a very uh, consuming job. And um, I just watched it and thought we easily could have just used the same piece of footage twice and saved a few hours. <laughs> yeah, no, but, but that wasn't the West Wing way. You cannot, but you're right. You cannot do that. Yeah, because it's ours perspectives. The, everyone who's seen it has changed. At first, we're curious and, and you can cut back and forth. It's like, what's going on? This is weird. This seems important. What, did you take a cab? What is this about? But now we know and we can step back, and we can see it from a bigger perspective. And that's a great director. That's a very good point. One thing I, I, we didn't talk about yet that I really love is Josh and I sometimes talk about some of the choices that you as an actor make like that, that really bring Toby to life and, and make him so distinct. One of the ones that I love. Well, losing his hair was a big choice. So I thought, <laughs> that really, is commitment. You committed. I yeah. thought that was important. I, I like the accent that you put on the word nut here. So did I when I watched it again. Did you think I was going to have the press secretary on behalf of the president compare a federal judge to a pistachio nut? <laughs> and I was That's also, great. If you're richer. Um, it made me think of a Christopher Guest moment from um, the movie Best in Show. I don't know if you all know that show, but there's a moment where Christopher Guest starts naming nuts, and the way he says pistachio, he calls it a pistachio nut um, in the same similar kind of way. I used to be able to name every nut that there was. Pistachio nut, red pistachio nut, natural, all natural, white pistachio nut. I think it's conceivable that when we put out the podcast, we will cut this and place it earlier rather than finishing on it. <laughs> but it was worth visiting. <laughs> I think if you dig hard enough, there's a theme for the, for the whole yeah. <laughs> episode. No, you that, may be right. In that little uh, possession. I did, wonder, I did wonder why I uh, expressed it that way, but I was always looking for ways to uh, accentuate a point in the meter that maybe Aaron didn't expect that would pop me out, get me interested in it. So, But it was also the word nut was very appropriate at that moment. <laughs> You know, so I think maybe that's where it came from. But yeah, I noticed that too. I liked it, I have to say. <laughs> I will say that one of the things I found in my papers on this episode was um, 
some material that the staff gave to Aaron, you know, for that scene. And, you know, our sort of pitch to him was that the inappropriate, you know, thing that Toby had written in the press guidance was uh, comparing the court to a kangaroo court. And it's just, this is an example, I think, of Aaron's wonderful specificity because kangaroo court's kind of a little bit of a lazy cliche. It's the first thing probably you would think of if you were trying to insult a court. And he was, was and is allergic to cliche. How, is he allergic to nuts? That's a very good question. It also um, provided a nice moment for um, Joe Quincy to understand the workings of who we are as a family. True. Because later on, when CJ has it on her desk, and goes, oh, I would never, I, I got to change that. And he has a little smile on his face. It's, you know. and by the way, I thought Alice and Janie was so great in this episode. When is I that? Just was, when, when is that not the case? It's never not the case. It's never not the case, <laughs> but, but I, I mean, I think, I think it's, a, and, and, you know, same is true of Josh. I think you guys had really a hand, she, you know, Allison had more, but you guys had a handful of scenes, and they're so alive, and they're so, they, they really, um, the characters kind of, it's just such a great group of actors, this show. It's, it's such a rare occurrence, and so. Well, she, ha she had a great uh, place to start, which is completely dismissive and then find herself um, hanging off a cliff, really, um, uh, from a PR standpoint. And in many ways, I was similarly gifted because I started out with really nonsense from his perspective, and then something very profound was happening. You didn't have that luck so much. Well, but you know, in... in I knew something was coming. In Will Bailey's defense, I mean, I think he Thank has... You, I think, no, I think he has the same arc, except the last little piece of it is off screen, that he's working on this thing that, see, that feels to the audience like a typical West Wing storyline and would be a good storyline in any other episode, but that it just gets swallowed by this other thing. He just doesn't realize it in the fall. Despite scene. going head to head with Toby over and over and over, I think he wants to please him. And he has displeased Toby early on, even to the fact where to the point where Toby throws a ball yeah. at him. So I think the later scenes in the Roosevelt Room are fueled by a desire to come back with something decent. No doubt, but what's great, actually, about the scene between us, the first scene, is that I hurl a Spalding at you, and then I go into a tirade. And your disposition pretty much is like... <laughs> Well, I haven't thought about it. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it, it's so matter of fact. It's like, I'd apologize if I thought I should have thought about it. <laughs> but I didn't think about it. And those are the facts. And it was, it was actually fantastic counterpoint to my explosion. Plus, it shows that Will is part of the family in, in that Toby can be, can snap at him and, you know, bark at him in that early scene, probably because he's, you know, going through his own... Yeah, as you point out to him, you should either marry Andy or kill himself. Um, but, but Toby's going to tell you this thing that just happened that you probably could wait till morning to hear. You don't necessarily then, need to act on it. And he gets in the last dig in that scene, which is, you want me to close the blinds and turn down the lights? Before we close the, turn down the lights and close the blinds, let's wrap things up. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much to all of you for coming and joining us here at Union Chapel. The West Wing Weekly is a proud member of Radiotopia from PRX, a curated network of independent podcasts. You can check out the other podcasts at radiotopia.fm. We'd like to thank our guests so much. Please give a big round of applause to Eli Addy and Richard Schiff. And we'd also like to thank, of course, the Swingles for that amazing opening. Let's bring him back out. Swingles, will you come join us again? 
So um, one thing that I found when I was researching this episode that uh, I love, as we discussed earlier today, Life on Mars is also the title of a David Bowie song. And way back in 1979, Martin Sheen was the host of SNL in an episode, and the musical guest in that episode was David Bowie. We're going to end the show tonight with the Swingles. They're going to do Life on Mars. And to kick it off, before Josh and I leave the stage here, we thought we'd have President Bartlett introduce them. Ladies and gentlemen, David Bowie. It's a part of a small affair To the girl with the mousy hair But her mommy is yelling no And her daddy has told her to go But her friend is nowhere to be seen Now she walks to a sunken dream To the seat with the clearest view and she's hooked to the silver screen Whoa. But the film is a saddening bore Cause she's lifted ten times or more She could spit in the eyes of fools As they ask her to focus on
Thank you all so much. Thank you, Swingles. That was amazing. Okay. Okay. Thanks to Adzerk for providing their ad-serving platform to Radiotopia.